En busca de un mejor destino para ti, lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number seven for Sunday, June 16th, 2003. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. And we are the producer, director of the documentary film Identifying Nelson, Buscando a Roberto. Today we have a very special guest, Ralph Sprankles, who was the lead investigator on my case back in 1997 and helped bring my family together. He lived in El Salvador for a number of years and has published several books and articles about this war in El Salvador, the missing children, and the armed conflict in El Salvador. He has published several books and articles about the civil war in El Salvador, the missing children, and the consequences of the armed conflict. He lives in the Netherlands and is currently working on a PhD in anthropology at the Yurtek University. We are very pleased to have you here, Ralph Sprinkles. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be able to join you for this podcast and to have the opportunity to chat with you uh, on the, and to support this wonderful project that you're working on. Thank you. So uh, we wanted to talk to you because of your background with uh, ProBuskida, which was the organization that helped reunite me with my family. And today's conversation is going to be about how you got started working with that organization and a little bit of the history. Because I think this is, uh, this is an organization that we talk a lot about in the film and John and I referenced in several of the podcasts. And we wanted our listeners to understand why this organization was formed and how it was formed and who better to ask than the person that was there from the beginning. And also it's an organization that's still doing a lot of important work and is still finding people. So it's yes. still still very relevant today. Yes, it's, indeed. It's still, Kowalska is still going strong. In order to um, to understand the story of, of, of Kowalska, it is uh, necessary to first go back to uh, the time when the peace accords were signed in El Salvador, mm -hmm. 1992. Uh, one of the provisions of the peace accords was that there would be a special United Nations commission to investigate the abuses that had been committed during the Civil War. This was called the UN Truth Commission. And this Truth Commission was agreed upon as part of the peace accords by between the uh, guerrilla forces of the FMLN and the government, and it started working from a office in San Salvador, uh, receiving people. People would be invited or would be uh, free to go and present their cases to this commission. At the time, uh, John Cortina and myself, we were living in Chalatenango, in one of the provinces of El Salvador, uh, which was most heavily, heavily uh, affected by the war. And we were thinking about how 
we would be able to facilitate the people that we were working with at the time, people in, you know, former refugees in in recently uh, refounded communities, they were rebuilding their lives after the war in in, in Chalatenango. How to uh, to be able to get these people to uh, to tell their story for the Truth Commission? We knew uh, obviously John Cortina better than I, but we both knew that a lot had happened during the war in Chalatenango. John Cortina had been working in these. Uh, refugee communities for almost the entire war. Could you and could you take a moment? War, part, our audience might not um, know as much about John Cortina. Could you take a moment just to introduce him and, and tell a little bit about him um, at this time? Okay. John Cortina uh, was a Jesuit priest who came uh, to El Salvador in the 50s and started uh, working, uh, as many Jesuits do, both as a priest as well as, uh, in his case, a university professor. He was a civil civil engineer. Um, and his work with as a priest was mostly directed to uh, poor communities in El Salvador. Uh, so he became part of the church, the, the Salvadoran, church that was also concerned with the with the extreme poverty that was uh, the, the country was facing and also with uh, the increasing human rights violations that were taking place uh, during the 70s against those people who dared to protest against uh, the government and against the, the, the situation of economic deprivation they were living in. So he, um, John Cartina uh, uh, worked in El Salvador already before the war. Mm -hmm. And um, when uh, he was very close with Monsignor Oscar Arnulfo Romero, which was probably the most famous uh, Salvadoran in the world. And, and uh, uh, he was very much um, the spokesperson for uh, the poor people of El Salvador and crying out uh, towards uh, uh, towards the Salvadoran government, but also towards an international audience that uh, things needed to change in El Salvador in, during the 70s. When uh, Monsignor Romero was uh, murdered in 1980, uh, John Cortina was one of the people who came afterwards and, you know, he was, he was very close to John Cortina and to a lot of other people who were working uh, in the, the Catholic Church in El Salvador at the time. And um, John Cortina uh, took uh, the, the photographs of Monsignor Romero having been shot uh, in order to save these as evidence for, oh, wow. um, for future reference. So he, he was, yeah, John Cortina was always um, uh, remained very much involved with, um, with the church, but also with the communities that were suffering persecution and repression uh, by the government. And as these communities no, were mostly no longer able to live in their places of origin, and went to the refugee camps. Well, John Cortina went also to the refugee camps to say mass there and to 
accompany people in those camps. And then when the people were, the war was becoming a little bit less bloody and, and the Salvadoran military was uh, doing less killing than before, people started to go back to their communities to try and settle again in these different communities, uh, in, in these different areas of the country that had been um, basically depopulated by military activity in the mm -hmm. early 80s. And John Cortina was one of the priests that accompanied that project of repopulation. So he knew the people in, the, in these communities, in, uh, in, in this case in Chalatenango, very well. Chalatenango was one of the, the provinces that was most affected by the war. And it was also one of the places where most of these repopulated communities uh, started to be found, uh, started to be uh, founded to these new settlements were, um, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get my English right here. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> when, when this repopulation movement was looking for places to settle, Chalatenango was one of the provinces in which most of these communities were resettled. And it's, um, it's right up against the border of Honduras where a lot of the refugee camps were, right? It, it was close to the refugee camps and it was a large, uh, a large uh, area that had been uh, depopulated through the military activity. Nelson's father almost lost his life in Chalatenango. He was wounded right near his heart um, in, the, in like 1981 or 1980. So in the early days of the war, right? Yes, yes, yes. I read yeah. That. And, yeah. And you know, we'll put um we'll put a map in the show notes so that everyone can see exactly what we're talking about yeah. because yeah. you know, right. yeah. yes, because <laughs> the geography of uh, Central America is pretty difficult. Forget the geography of, of El Salvador. So, but uh, to come to go back to 1992 uh, when the peace accords were signed, the people in these repopulated communities were very, very relieved, very happy, uh, generally speaking, that the war was finally over uh, because they had suffered tremendously in the war. Yeah. And most of the suffering had been through the persecution of the military. They had also lost loved ones because they had joined the guerrilla army or because they had... Uh, they had been killed in combat on both sides, but mostly these people had, had, were sympathetic to the guerrillas. However, most of the people, most of the people that were killed, most of the campesinos, the farmers in the, in the area that were killed, were killed in uh, military operations in which the military would kill people that they suspected of being a support basis for the guerrilla army. So a lot of people have been killed, disappeared, etc. So we knew, John Cortina and I knew that there were a lot of, of, of families that wanted to present their cases to the Truth Commission uh, and, and wanted to tell their story. There have been a lot of massacres in Chalatenango. And before it had been very difficult to document uh, these types of events because the government and the military would not allow it. 
it would be very dangerous to work on human rights issues inside El Salvador. During the war, many human rights defenders were killed. Monsignor Romero was the first, was not, not the first, but the, the, the best known. Mm -hmm. But after him, uh, many others were also killed that were working on the defense of human rights. So with the peace accords, it, it was a new opportunity to document what had happened and to address the issue of justice and impunity in, in relation to, to uh, the crimes that had been committed. And we found it particularly important that the families would be able to present their cases themselves to have the agency to be able to talk directly to the, to the Truth Commission and to be taken into account as much as any other family from maybe, you know, families from the capital city or, or uh, other families that would visit the Truth Commission to present their cases. Well, we felt that also the, the, the peasants, families had, just as much right to be able to present their cases and that their cases should be heard. So we, we talked to the, some representatives of the Truth Commission in San Salvador, and we also spoke with human rights defenders that worked in the capital city about what to do in, in facilitating access of the people of Chalatenango to the Truth Commission. And we decided to work uh, in two directions. One direction was to uh, set up a small team in which I participated, John Cortina and some other people uh, as well, and to document uh, the, the cases that had occurred in Chalatenango, to document the different massacres and to take uh, the testimonies of the different families and, and prepare, prepare the cases, prepare the outline of the different cases that the families wanted to present. And the second direction that we worked on was to insist with the Tooth Commission for them to personally visit Chalatenango and talk to the people involved. And eventually the Tooth Commission accepted that, that they would sort of use what, what we had prepared so that they would be able to speak with the families based on that and it would facilitate their work and they would be able to, to uh, process uh, the cases more quickly. Mm -hmm. Because when they finally did arrive, uh, a representation of the, of the Commission in El Salvador uh, in Chalatenango, when, the, when these representatives finally did arrive, it would, you know, they were flooded with families. There were many, many cases. Almost everybody had, had lost uh, loved ones, uh, had suffered persecution. So uh, a lot of people wanted to present their cases. And well, they were, you know, I, I'm just going to jump in here. You know, I think that's something that the American audience doesn't necessarily understand the extent of the disappearances that were going on in El Salvador. And my mother talks about this in, in her book where she says, uh, or, or she makes the analogy that in 
the U.S. population terms, it would be the equivalent of 50,000 people disappearing per month. And in El Salvador, uh, well, in the U.S., that is a large number uh, if, if you were to make the comparison. And I think that in a country that is the size and population of Massachusetts, there were a lot of people that were going missing. This wasn't just a few people on the sidelines. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what that was like for the country as a whole to have all these people just disappearing and being killed and, and all the things that, that um, set off these investigations. That's that's a very large topic, no? What, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's impossible to understand the Salvadoran civil war without the uh, this component of political violence and political persecution. And what is important to to take into account if uh, if if you look at the documentation of the violence, is that most of this uh, extreme violence took place between late 1979 and 1982. So a relatively short period, but roughly three years uh, of very, very brutal violence and persecution. After that, there was still uh, several well-known cases of severe human rights violations, but it wasn't that level of terror anymore that had occurred in the first two years of the of the 1980s. So when the, the issue of human rights is, has always been also a major issue in the whole political tug of war around the Salvadoran civil war. In international politics, the Salvadoran conflict was always addressed or almost always addressed on the topic of human rights. Of course, there was also you know, the, the, the geopolitical aspect with the, with the United States saying, you know, this is yeah. a, a communist threat coming uh, from Central America. But the major issue that was raised by almost everyone involved in order to try and influence uh, United States policy in El Salvador is always human rights. Maybe um, I'd love to know, I mean, you, you documented a lot of what happened, and I, I think what we're trying to give people a sense of, maybe the best case is Chalitzenango for, for your description. Um, what happened to those people from 1979 to 82? What, what did they experience? How, how were they treated? How were they grouped? I mean, my understanding is they were. It was, there's this uh, term, "remove the water from the fish," or where mm-hmm. where everybody was was grouped as one, and they had a scorched earth campaign to basically depopulate the region. Can you add to that, or 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 maybe give a better description? Well, yeah, I, I, I've studied that. I, I've, I've recently published, or, or I'm in the process of publishing an, uh, an article called Chrono- Chronological Index of Political Violence in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wrote it together with my wife. And we analyzed the sequence of violence in El Salvador. And it's, it is a long story. It's mm-hmm. hard to make it... Sure. ...to fit it in... What, of course, I can describe 
uh, or try to describe the terror, but it would not do justice to understanding the process of how this violence came about. Mm -hmm. It would only it would only help give an impression of how terrible it was. So that I what what I what 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 I would propose is because I was almost getting there when when talking about the truth commission. Mm -hmm. um, then I can tell I can I can tell you something about how that process went with the truth commission in the okay. community. What kind of stories were recorded? Mm -hmm. And then we that that brings us to the issue of disappeared children. Okay, great. Yeah, sure. and <clears throat> because there there are several things about the issue of disappeared children that the that are interesting per se and. The issue of disappeared children, as we documented it, was a new thing. It mm -hmm. wasn't something widely accepted within the human rights community. But uh, when we raised the issue of disappeared children, uh, the, there were even people in the human rights community who said, "That's you know, don't do it. They were killed. These children are dead. Don't do it." Mm -hmm. yeah. So and, we, had, and, uh, we had to fight to get a space for the topic of disappeared children mm -hmm. within the human rights community itself. Is that the human rights community in El Salvador, or are, are you talking about as uh, Central America as a whole? I'm talking about the human rights community in El Salvador. Yeah. Okay, so even proposing the idea that children were, were taken forcibly was not widely accepted, even by the people who were who are fighting. Uh, well, very rights. much in the beginning of the process, no. And and that's because. But but if if I talk about the truth commission, then I will get to that. How we okay? What happened when we started uh, to seek support for our idea uh, of searching disappeared children? How it how the environment responded. When I talk about, the, you know, when I take it from the Truth Commission and then what we do with what the Truth Commission did, then we get to that aspect. So should I go back to the Truth Commission part then? Yeah, why don't we start a little bit with um, what exactly is the Truth Commission? You know, just just briefly for people who don't know, you know, and I think that's an important place to start. Okay, so the Truth Commission was a, a UN-installed commission, which was founded based on an agreement between the Salvadoran government and the FMLN that accepted the necessity to investigate the atrocities that had occurred during the Civil War. And in that agreement, both parties accepted that in order to be able to pacify the country, it was necessary to address some of that very painful history that had occurred in previous years during the war. And of course, that doesn't mean that everybody uh, in El Salvador was uh, happy with the, the Truth Commission, especially the military was very concerned with what the Truth Commission would find. And the government of El Salvador wasn't very enthusiastic either. But it was clear that in order to be able to move on with the peace process, it would be necessary to have a truth commission addressing 
these major issues because they also have been a very important part of how El Salvador had been had been talked about in international terms. The murder of Monsignor Romero, the assassination of the Jesuits in 1989. So these were these were events that had not only caused a tremendous impact in El Salvador itself, but had also caused international impact and have brought a lot of international attention and international concern to El Salvador. As I said, our interest with the Truth Commission was that we felt they needed to also get the stories from the grassroots, from the families that had suffered persecution the most. And even though many people were victimized during El Salvador's civil war, clearly those that suffered the worst part of the violence were the the peasants. So we felt, working with peasant communities at the time, we thought it was very important that they, that these families would have access to the Truth Commission. And luckily the Truth Commission also accepted to uh, send representations to these communities and take testimonies uh, about what had happened during the war in these communities. These were impressive events because the the Truth Commission would be installed somewhere in a a school or in a a church uh, with their desks and their their typewriters and their material. It was 1992. Computers were just, you know, just getting started to to be used. A lot of stuff was still being done with uh, typewriters, and people would just would just uh, uh, flood the place. So people would come from the village and from the surrounding villages, and hundreds of people would would stand in line for hours in order to be able to tell their story. This this was a very important uh, symbolic moment for people who have not been able to talk freely about what had happened to them for over a decade. And the stories that were told were, uh, were terrifying stories, of course, because what what happened during the war in El Salvador was, especially in the first few years of the war, was that the military and the right-wing paramilitary groups thought they would be able to win the war by exterminating the supporters of the guerrilla, of the left-wing movement. Uh, so a lot of massacres were committed amongst people that uh, that were considered to be sim- sympathetic to the guerrillas, or even just farmers, peasant families living in a place where there happened to be a lot of guerrilla activity, and uh, the the government, the the Salvadoran military, uh, with the um, backing of the United States. Uh, invented a, uh, a policy that they called to uh, drain the sea to catch the fish, mm-hmm. which means that they would eliminate the local population uh, from a certain area to be able to get to the guerrilla forces that were living there, that were moving in that area. 
and they would eliminate the population by murdering them or by uh, forcing them out of the country. So what happened was a lot of massacres, refugee camps along the border that filled up with, uh, with families uh, fleeing from their homes. Villages were burned to the ground. Many uh, children were murdered. Other children were taken. There are many, many horrifying stories about that violence because the violence was also intended to create terror for people to never come back. So the idea of violence as a message, as a terrific message, was, was very important in those first years of the Salvadoran War. And that's why the, the first years of the Salvadoran War were so very atrocious, as they were also in Guatemala, which has suffered, uh, in, in that sense, suffered similar types of, of military campaign and similar types of, of violence. But all of these different stories that were being recorded by the Tooth Commission, we had expected these stories, but we had not expected so many people. So it was really the the group that was working locally to prepare all the cases to be presented to the Truth Commission. We documented over 3,000 testimonies of uh, so 3,000 families that presented their cases, which uh, and each case would often be more than one family member that had been either murdered or, or disappeared uh, or raped or. No, the, 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 the amount, the, 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 the quantity of, of the cases presented was very impressive. Also, what was also impressive was, of course, the, how people were both pained to be able to tell these stories, but also relieved and at a certain, in a certain way uh, dignified to finally be able to tell these different stories that they had not been able to tell about about the losses they had suffered. One case that particularly drew our attention was the case of a military operation that occurred in 1992 in Chalatenango. Or 82, you mean? In which the, we uh, learned that the military had separated children from the adults and had subsequently put the children in helicopters and had started to kill the adults. And we, you know, we were surprised to a certain extent, we were surprised to hear this because we hadn't really heard about a case like that before working on, on, on human rights issues in El Salvador. And we started to wonder what had happened to these children. And we found that also the families that presented these cases they wanted to know when it happened at the time in in midst in the midst of terror the families many of the families thought you know these children have been murdered they were thrown out of the helicopter or they were but as time uh, went on uh, they they started to doubt what if my children are still alive what if you know they weren't murdered but they were taken somewhere else Thank you for listening this week. Our conversation with Ralph Sprenkels ran a little longer than we anticipated, so we're going to divide it up into a second episode. We hope that you'll listen next week. 
where we get to hear from Ralph Sprinkles about the founding of Pro Busqueda. We hope you'll have a chance to check out some of the links in the podcast and also included in the show notes at the website. And would very much look forward to your feedback if you'd like to leave a comment on our Facebook group, which can be found at facebook.com slash identifying Nelson. Thanks a lot for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Para cantar a los vientos.